Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Aria, a volunteer host for the New Book Network's National Security Channel. I'm here to introduce you to groundbreaking authors, and together I hope we can explore books that perhaps don't fit under the traditional national security umbrella. I tend to view these issues as intersectional, and I hope you do as well. A little about me, I work as a counsel on the House Judiciary Committee. As a standard disclaimer, the statements, questions, or opinions shared on this podcast do not reflect those of my employer. I just do this for fun and to explore new and interesting books. Now... So the real reason you're all here, the book, and our, quite frankly, prescient author. I'm delighted to introduce you to today's guest, Professor Rick Hassan, is the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science with the University of California, Irvine. Rick is a nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance regulation, and you have likely heard his in-depth analysis on these issues on various cable news networks. He is the founding co-editor of the Election Law Journal and was named one of the 100 most influential lawyers in America in 2013. I personally have had the privilege to witness his thought-provoking congressional testimony firsthand, and I'm excited that he's here today to discuss his latest book, Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy. Rick, it's wonderful to have you here on the podcast. Welcome. How are you? Thanks. It's great to be with you. Uh, i like to start these by just kind of getting a sense of how you got into these issues. How did election law, election security, voter participation, threats to free and fair elections really become the focus of your work? And quite frankly, what you're famous for at this point. Well, um, I've been teaching election law since the mid-1990s, but I think it's really the 2000 election that put the focus on election administration and the rise of social media and changes in our uh, politics, including the rise of polarization, have made elections more high stakes and um, technology has in some ways made them uh, more fraught with danger. And so this is now my second book on this topic. The first one, The Voting Wars in 2012, talked about the, the emerging splits. And now I think we see things uh, deteriorating in terms of uh, how we conduct our elections in this country, and more importantly, for the focus of my book, how public confidence in elections uh, has been declining. Let's, let's dive right into the book. You, you go through what you describe as four key phenomena that are undermining voter trust in our elections, one being escalation, voter suppression, two, pockets of incompetence in election administration, three, dirty tricks by old foes, whether they're foreign or domestic, and for incendiary rhetoric. For our listeners, could you just briefly walk through each of those four phenomena, and then which of those do you view as the most corrosive, whether in the the short term or the long term? Because they they all are really, quite frankly, terrible in their own right. Sure. So, yeah, I do talk about these four things. First, voter suppression. And, you know, by when I wrote my book in 2012, The Voting Wars, uh, I, I tried to avoid that, that use of that term voter suppression. I was, I think, kind of trying to give more of the benefit of the doubt to those who were saying that election integrity was a big problem and we need to make sure we 
have laws in place to ferret out fraud, but we've now had another decade of experience. And what we see is that voter fraud is in fact quite rare, that the laws that are passed to prevent voter fraud don't prevent an appreciable amount of fraud, and that they instead are aimed at trying to make it harder for people, primarily uh, Democrats, to register and to vote. And so that creates a kind of a feedback loop between Democrats and Republicans. Republican voters hear all the time that Democrats are trying to commit fraud, and therefore you need to have strict voting laws in place to prevent that fraud. This convinces Republicans that Democrats are trying to cheat. Democrats, seeing the fact that there is very little voter fraud and that these laws are being passed with um, uh, an effect, uh, at least in some instances, especially on communities that are most likely to vote for Democrats, um, uh, women, uh, voters of color, racial minority, um, pockets like um, Native American populations in particular, and um, all different um, means of uh, whether it's make it harder to register to vote. Uh, the example involving Native Americans that I think is particularly egregious is, is requiring people to have residential home addresses in order to be able to vote when um, uh, some of these people living on uh, reservations did not have such addresses. Uh, and, you know, this, this was really put in place to try to swing a, a Senate race. You, you see stuff like that. And, you know, both sides think the other side is trying to cheat by uh, manipulating the rules. So that's one problem. Second problem is that uh, we, we administer our elections in a decentralized way. Most election administrators do a pretty good job on limited resources. But there are places where there are problems. And when there's a very close election, there's immediately focus on those problems because that's where you would look if you were trying to litigate over a close election to try to swing the election one way or the other and see so would focus on these pockets. And uh, often in our polarized, distrustful atmosphere, what turns out to be a case of incompetence is seen by the other side as deliberate attempt to steal the election. Uh, and so when, when you're in a, a uh, polarized atmosphere, you're not willing to give people the benefits of the doubt uh, when you have um, a problem with how an election is run. And so that can undermine legitimacy as well. Even putting aside the concern that an election might be stolen, you know, if, you, if you're worried about that by incompetence, just the incompetence itself is very troubling. The idea that we would not have a, um, an election competently run and maybe the vote totals don't accurately reflect what the reality is. Uh, the third uh, uh, issue, as you mentioned, that undermines voter confidence is dirty tricks. Uh, we think of, for example, the Russians in 2016 stealing uh, emails from the Democratic National Committee and releasing them and going on social media and trying to rile everyone up against uh, uh, other um, people by uh, uh, putting up uh, posts about immigration or Black Lives Matter or abortion or whatever hot button issue you can think of. Uh, and uh, the Russians also broke into voter registration uh, databases uh, in the United States. Uh, they didn't change the information, but that seemed to be designed to show that this kind of sniffing that they can get around and, and do what they want. Um, it's not just the Russians. We have lots of domestic people, especially in this election, engaged in spreading misinformation. And uh, this can undermine people's confidence in the process, especially in a time like COVID when we're more likely to believe misinformation. You know, if somebody told you the election was being postponed, you would think that's ridiculous. But in a time of COVID, you might not think it's so ridiculous. And then the last uh, of the four is uh, increasingly incendiary rhetoric about rigged or stolen elections. Uh, President Trump is obviously the most prominent person uh, who's con consistently making these kinds of claims, but he's not the only one. And I point in the book, for example, to Stacey Abrams, who uh, ran in a race against Brian Kemp, who was terrible in terms of administering the election, 
but there was no um, evidence that what he had done had actually swung the governor's race in uh, 20, uh, 2018 um, towards him rather than uh, towards Stacey Abrams. But yet many Stacey Abrams supporters say that she actually won that election and that the election was stolen. And I think when people hear that elections are stolen, that is delegitimizing and makes people think, well, why should I even bother voting if everything is rigged? Uh, and so to answer your final question, which is the most important, I think uh, the way I view this is that they work synergistically, that uh, all of these things feed on each other in a polarized atmosphere and contribute to uh, this, uh, this um, overarching concern, which we now have as we're approaching the 2020 election, that somehow the election is going to be messed with and the counting is not going to be legitimate. I'm especially concerned that whoever's on the losing end is going to feel that way because we know from public opinion surveys that people whose candidates win tend to be much more likely to believe that the election was fairly run than people who lose. Uh, and so the idea is to have a legitimate enough election that even the losers say, well, I'm disappointed, but the other side won fair and square and I'll just wait and fight in the next election. Before I go to what I had planned as my next question, I, I just want to go back to sort of your point on voter suppression, because you mentioned how you didn't really want to talk about it in your first book. But I think now there's a, a better, a growing understanding that voter suppression, voter protection issues are, in fact, a national security issue. And I was hoping maybe you could explain a little bit about why you felt compelled to include it. Or it well, maybe not why you felt compelled to include it now, but what, what can, how can we convince folks that this is that it is in fact a national security issue, right? That because right, this is a national security podcast, and it fits under the rubric of election security, even though most folks think of it as more of a civil rights issue. If that makes sense. Yeah. Right. Well, I think that, um, for example, President Trump is tweeting all of this stuff about mail-in ballots being fraudulent um, and uh, that you can't trust the system. Stuff that is completely unsupported by the evidence. Uh, we have very minor problems with fraud, uh, more common with absentee ballots, but still very rare, not the kind of fraud that would uh, be plausible to try to use to steal a presidential election. And yet these Trump tweets are being amplified by uh, the Russian government, according to reports from intelligence sources. And so when we fight about our election rules and we claim we need to have stricter uh, controls on, say, mail-in voting because uh, of the potential for fraud, um, this is this very discussion is undermining people's confidence in the process and the fact that our adversaries are piggybacking off it and amplifying these concerns, I think, shows that these kinds of um, rules are tearing us apart and it becomes the voting system itself becomes yet another polarizing issue like concerns about racial justice or concerns about immigration or anything else. And anytime the American people are split, our adversaries are going to use that as a wedge to try to draw us further apart and weaken our democracy. So I certainly see these kinds of issues as a national security issue, even putting aside things like hacking into voter registration databases or other things that would more comfortably fit into what we might think of as a national security issue. That makes sense. And I guess, you know, especially in communities that already feel disenfranchised from the voting process due to for historical reasons, uh, this just exacerbates that. Um, I'd like to now kind of bring up a, an article you just, you just published, I want to say it was 
couple of weeks ago, and it was in September. And it's where you, you, you take these themes and you sort of refocus them in the context of COVID-19. And instead, you frame them as three pathologies of voting in America, which is fragmentation, polarized and judicialized election decision-making, and weak constitutional protections to the right to vote. These are, there's a lot of overlap with what you, what you laid out in the book. And I was hope, hoping you could just walk us briefly through those pathologies and why you frame them as such when you put it into the context of this pandemic. Right. So I think, you know, the two papers are looking at the same time period, uh, you know, our current uh, conditions, uh, although my book came out just before COVID uh, hit the United States hard. Um, but, I, but they're asking fundamentally different questions. In the, um, uh, in the book, I'm asking, does American, uh, uh, is the American political system sufficiently strong to withstand the stress on the legitimacy of, of our elections? And what can we do to strengthen, strengthen it? In the paper that was just published in the Election Law Journal, I asked a different question, which is, why are voting rights in the United States so weakly protected? And I use the COVID-19 pandemic as a way of illustrating the weak protection. So, for example, I'm going to talk about fragmentation. I talk about the fact that in both um, Ohio and Wisconsin, uh, it was not clear if the governors had the authority to postpone and reschedule the primary elections because of uh, the difficulty of running an election in person in the midst of the pandemic. In Wisconsin and uh, Ohio, both governors said they did not have the authority. They tried to get the authority in Ohio by, from the courts in uh, Wisconsin from the legislature didn't get it and still declared the election delayed. And then in Wisconsin, uh, the state Supreme Court reversed that and the election went forward with 175 out of 180 polling places in Milwaukee closed. And in Ohio, because they had unified government, they were able to actually postpone the election, reschedule it, and had slightly better uh, results and how all that went. Um, that kind of fragmentation uh, of authority means that there's no one out there who's, you know, has the voter first. Uh, when they're thinking about uh, these kinds of issues. Um, and instead, what happens is the usual fights we see between Democrats and Republicans over access versus concerns of um, so-called integrity uh, of the election. Uh, these get fought out in the context of the pandemic as well. And we see this continued uh, you know, play out in the courts, where often but not always the judges themselves divide along party lines and whether to uh, ease requirements for voting by mail, for example, in the midst of a pandemic. And so it really becomes the grace of courts as to whether or not they're going to um, give voters the ability to vote safely in the midst of a pandemic. And, and that brings me to the, the final point, which is that things would be different if our Constitution provided generous, positive support for voting rights. Instead, the Constitution provides only negative support. It says you can't discriminate in voting on the basis of race or on the basis of age over 18 on the basis of gender. It doesn't say you have the right to vote for president that shall not be unduly infringed or something like that. And so I think that is the kind of concern that um, uh, you put them all together and you see that in the United States, even during a pandemic, how easy it is for you to be able to cast a ballot uh, in large part depends on where you live. I, when, I, when I read both the, the book and the article, it almost felt like that article could have been an additional chapter to the book because those themes, to me at least, also get at the issue of trust in the elections. Because if, again, if folks feel as if their vote doesn't matter because 
or that they won't have a fair opportunity to do so because the courts are going to rule against them or because it's, it's viewed as a Democrat or Republican issue, then, then they're going to ask themselves, well, why bother in the first place, which then again gets to the um, sort of, I think that fits in at least two of the, of the rubric you set out in the book. But th- that was kind of how I read it. Understanding that the book was published before really the, the brunt of the pandemic hit this country, is there, is there anything additional you would add to reflect on the current pandemic? Well, I think, you know, I talked about different scenarios in the book uh, in terms of uh, cyber attacks on the power grid and, and other specific things that could have happened. What this experience shows me is that there are lots of things that can go wrong with our election. I've just now been looking at the rules for how the electors vote. And now we're dealing with the question, what if a presidential candidate dies or becomes incapacitated in the period between election day and the time the electors meet or after the electors meet or before Congress votes? And it just shows me we have such a convoluted, decentralized, partisan, um, unuser-friendly election system. And if you compare it to other countries, this is not a comparative law podcast, but uh, I wish it, it were, um, uh, there are lots of other countries. In fact, almost every other advanced democracy that doesn't do it this way. They have nonpartisan, centralized election administrations. They protect the right to vote in their, uh, in their um, country's constitution, and they just it's a non-issue. I, I recently did a podcast recording with a couple of election law experts from Canada and uh, Australia, and it's just such a dramatic contrast between the non-issue of how elections are run in those countries and the quadrennial angst that we have in this country uh, when we try to run an election. And it's just, it doesn't have to be this way. We're just used to it being this way because this is how it is here, but this is not uh, the way it is uh, throughout the rest of the world. I'm always happy to talk comparative law with you anytime, sir. Uh, but that actually kind of, well, so, you know, that's actually a really good segue because I wanted to, you, you, before we get into the short, long, mid and long-term solutions you talk about, one of the things that is often said sort of to counter that point is that, well, there is a measure of security in the fact that our system is so convoluted. Because then if somebody tries to, quote, hack a part of the election, they can't because it's going to vary from state to state, from county to county, from district to district. It, it, is, there, is, that, is that just a way to get around from, from updating and taking on this, this approach that, you know, you're talking about or that's done elsewhere? Or is there actual merit in that? Actual merit in? In, the, in that like argument where it's like there's actually a benefit to having this really convoluted system because it makes it harder yeah. to, to quote. Yeah. Hack. So yeah, I hear this a lot. It's like, well, thank goodness our system decentralized because then if we had a president who tries to manipulate it, they couldn't do it. And I believe that centralization would only make sense if we had a really independent and nonpartisan election administrative body like the Federal Reserve, you know, something insulated from politics, uh, you know, and that, that might require a constitutional amendment. Uh, which is what I suggest at the end of that three pathologies piece. Um, I don't think we benefit from uh, a hyper decentralized system. It's not even that we have a 51, 50 state plus DC system. It's that we have 10,000 different election jurisdictions. You know, I think in Michigan alone, they have something like 1600. And, you know, now everybody's worried, is Michigan going to be able to count the votes? Is it going to take weeks? You know, all kinds of issues about, uh, you know, are there going to be 
threats to election integrity if there's a long lag time between the time people vote and the time that election results are announced. And, you know, all of that um, would be avoided if we had a, you know, a, a national system with uniformity in machinery, uniformity in rules, uh, nonpartisans running the show. I, I really don't think that the convoluted nature does very much. Now, if you're talking about the Electoral College itself, I, I, you know, I bracket that. I think, you know, that is, uh, you know, a, a more of a philosophical question about whether we um, want a state-based system or a popular vote system for choosing the president. I, I tend towards a popular vote system, but I, I recognize that there's an ideological argument for voting state by state. But I don't buy the argument that the Electoral College protects us from problems. In fact, I think it exacerbates problems. So we're I'm literally staying up at night worried that Pennsylvania is not going to be able to count its votes properly on election night. And if we had a popular vote, uh, it's true you might try to have a recount in 50 states, but the odds that an election would be within, you know, thousands of votes across the country, it's really uh, very, very small. Uh, you know, the margins are usually in the millions, even in a relatively close race. And so the idea that you have a recount, you wouldn't have it. So I don't buy the argument that the Electoral College makes sense because of election administration reasons. And certainly the subsidiary rules for the electors and how they meet and what happens in Congress if they disagree over which electors should count, all that stuff, just really, really a mess. And so, so I, I, I don't buy the let a thousand flowers bloom in the context of uh, um, election administration. Works in a lot of other contexts, but not, not here. How do you feel about, so, you know, a lot of attention is now because folks are worried that states won't be able to count fast enough on the fact that we we have a media ecosystem that is, you know, trying to declare who the winner is of a particular state or in, in any of the major races, you know, the first one to declare it and as fast as possible. I always think back to, I think, and I'm, I'm being sort of very top line when I say this, in India, they have like, it's like a three week period for some of for the really big national elections because of just how populous that country is, how remote certain people are. They, they, and it's kind of like a staggered effect, like, okay, we'll make sure all the votes are counted in, in this area and then it's the next one. And so they won't declare a winner until I, I want to say it's like three to four weeks. Um, and, and that is, that is the rule there. So I was, how do you feel about sort of, and whether that's going to exacerbate and this and whether the media needs to take a hard look in how it calls elections. So uh, I was part of an, uh, an ad hoc committee, a cross-ideological, cross-disciplinary committee. Um, they issued a report in April called Fair Elections During a Crisis. Uh, if you Google Fair Elections During a Crisis, you'll find it. And one of the things you'll see there is um, a recommendation that the media uh, recognize that because of the pandemic, it's going to take a lot longer, and with many more people voting by mail, it would take a lot longer to process those ballots. It's going to take a while before we have results, and that important for the media to get the message across to the public about too early to call. That we have to change our expectations, stop thinking about it as election day, think about it as election week or election month, and that we're gonna to need to be patient. And also the social media companies are going to need to counter disinformation, disinformation uh, effects uh, that might call into question the counting of votes. You know, one thing that um, some people from outside the United States have suggested to me is, well, we shouldn't release any results until all the results are known. You just don't get any preliminary results along the way. And I don't think that would work well in this country. And the reason is because I think we need more transparency. We need, besides the fact that I think it would probably be a First Amendment problem, but 
uh, you know, if the information is known to not report it. Um, I think we want election administrators to be as precise as possible. Here's what we know so far. Here's how many ballots are left. Here's when we expect to count them, make it all transparent. And so while it might be better for the country, we actually had this uh, experience with the Wisconsin election where there was a court order, don't release results until I think it was five days or six days after the election that worked okay. I don't think for a presidential election under these conditions, it could really work. So I am uh, uh, I'm concerned about the time lag between the time that the uh, ballots are done being cast and the time we get final results. If it's not a close election, we might know on election night or the morning after. Uh, that's definitely a possibility if the polling uh, from uh, early October is correct. But who knows where we're going to be when we get to November 3rd. Um, yeah, so I think people have to have patience. Patience. Yeah, especially because with, with certain states, even though folks are sending in their ballots now, they're not allowed to count it until the day of. I think my home state of Pennsylvania has that rule, if I remember correctly. Uh, I've been trying to make that change. And yeah. uh, so far, the Democratic governor and the Republican um, legislature have not reached agreement. Sounds about right. Uh, going before, before I ask you about some of the solutions, I, I want to go back to one of the factors that where you talk about one of the most common tools for fighting voter suppression is litigation. But you also had flagged in the, the article uh, where you discussed the pathologies and put this in the context of COVID. You, you flagged the house. The litigation obviously has some uh, hurdles it needs to deal with. But, you know, election litigation has nearly tripled in the post-2000 period. And there is a, an unsurprising surge of election litigation in response to the pandemic. I think the article cited... As of July 2020, there were 163 virus-related election suits filed across 41 states and the District of Columbia. Why, even though it may seem like that is a very robust, why is it in fact that the litigation currently to protect voters is not as robust as it may seem? It's not as, it isn't actually working maybe in the way people think, because that is, that is the go-to response, right? Like, okay, I'm being, like, this is happening, we need to sue. And you're seeing that more and more, like we're seeing in Congress, we're seeing it everywhere. Why is putting that much of a burden on the courts a little bit risky? So when I last checked, which was this morning, uh, there were 343 of those cases filed. Oh. That's, well, a lot right. of that's a lot of yeah. litigation close to the election. That's a real concern about um, whether we're going to know what the rules are for the election. So one of the things it's important to have is clear rules. So everybody knows because you don't want somebody, even a court messing with the rules uh, after an election. So there's a lot of pre-election litigation. Um, they fall into generally two categories. This is COVID related election litigation. Number one, uh, an argument, you should have changed the rules because stuff's much more burdensome during this election. Like, you know, you require a witness signature, but we shouldn't need it now. Or um, you've changed the rules, you've closed polling places because you can't get poll workers, and now we don't have a means of voting, so we need a new remedy. And so some of this litigation is inevitable, some of this litigation is helpful, but um, fighting over the rules and getting the courts involved and making changes back and forth, I think, can further undermine the public's confidence in the process. So in South Carolina, uh, on the signature question, whether you needed a, a witness to get a signature, it was uh, the district court ruled runway. The Fourth Circuit ruled another way. The Fourth Circuit on bank ruled and, uh, uh, back to the way the district court was, and the case went to the Supreme Court. I mean, how many times can we do this in the period before the election? 
and this is, uh, you know, uh, um, getting to a period uh, as we're recording, more than two million people have already voted in the election. And, you know, we're still fighting over those election rules. So I think there comes a point where it becomes very difficult to have further litigation, but there's not really a good solution because if people's rights are being violated, you can't say, well, sorry, it's too late. Don't bother suing. Although some courts have actually said that. There's something called the Purcell principle, which says you can't get changes to an election too close to the election. It seems to me that that, that, that goes a little too far because if there's a really a big problem, uh, then courts need to address it even if it's coming close to the election, if it's not something that could have been anticipated or, or sued about earlier. Um, so, but I do think, you know, of course, Americans first response is run to court. Uh, that's not the way it is in lots of other countries. The amount of litigation over those questions is, is much rarer in, in, in most other uh, advanced democracies. I think as, especially as lawyers, we, we like that a lot. And I'm not saying I would want to change it. By no means am I saying I want to change that. But is there, is there anything that can be done that can support that can make that like a, a better ecosystem in which folks can operate because, you know, we're seeing, for example, when the public doesn't view change that's going through the courts or that's going through Congress as enough, like in the criminal justice space and in the racial justice space, is, is there something that the public can do that would help on the election litigation? Or is it just that folks have to keep talking about it and they have to keep raising these issues? Well, I mean, I think this gets into um, what can we do in the, in the short term. And litigation is one of those short-term solutions. It's not a great solution because, uh, as I said, the courts are dividing, the rules keep changing. Uh, we don't have strong protection for voting rights in the Constitution. So, uh, you know, depending on what your ideological predisposition is as a judge, you might be more or less likely to grant relief. I think, you know, in this election, you know, my advice is uh, vote early. Uh, make sure your vote counts. Uh, in lots of places, if you're voting by mail, you can check to make sure your vote's been received and accepted. Um, don't fall for misinformation. But you know, in terms of litigation, I don't think there's much that can be done. Just try to pay attention to official channels of communication in terms of what the rules are, especially if the rules are changing. Uh, but it is a very tough position to put voters in. They have to be constantly paying attention to see what the rules are. Do I need a signature? Don't I need a signature? If I don't put it back to you, said you're from Pennsylvania. I don't put it in the inner ballot, then my ballot's not going to count. It's a naked ballot. You know, it's like, yeah, but that wasn't the rule before. They're not going to match signatures. They are going to match signatures. And so this is just very confusing for voters. And regardless of litigation, these things are changing because of the pandemic. And that makes it confusing for voters as well. Yeah. My parents still vote in Pennsylvania. I, I, I no longer live there, but my parents vote in Pennsylvania. And they, my dad's response is, you know what, we're, we're just going to go in. We're just going to go in and vote. And we're just going to make sure we're masked up. And just have to take that risk. And I think, which is an unfortunate thing, especially, you know, my parents are a little bit older. It, that, that's not, it's not comforting to, to have to worry about that, but that, that is the world we live in now. Yeah. Um, as you brought up the solutions, I, you, you, you lay out short, midterm, and long-term solutions. I think we've covered some of the short-term solutions, but in terms of what do you, what would you view as, and you, you, you lay out a, a variety of, of solutions. If for, in the short and midterm, what would you view as the most pressing solutions that we should pursue as quickly as possible if, if we were able to? Yeah, well, when we issued that report for elections during a crisis in April, I said, you know, there's still six months. But now 
you know, as we're recording, there's less than 30 days. Yeah. Um, so there's not much that can be done in a lot of areas. We can't start adding drop boxes that don't exist. Um, uh, you know, voters who've missed voter registration deadlines because they couldn't register in time, it's too late for them. Uh, so uh, on, on some things, it's too late. On the media and social media getting it right, I think that's important. On calling for uh, the loser to accept the results of the election in the event that we have a fair election, which I think we will, uh, that's very important to do. Um, spreading true information about voting, uh, that's important. And having patience, those things we talked about in terms of if there's a delay in the processing of election results, we should see a slow count as a careful count rather than as something that shows incompetence. Um, and just continuing to hammer home these messages. I mean, I think short term, that's really um, what uh, the best we can do. And, uh, and of course, recite the election administrator's prayer, which is, Lord, let this election not be close. Uh, because when it's a close election, that's when you look at all of the stuff that's going wrong. And that's when you look at all the problems. And, and that is um, uh, when the legitimacy of the election is most under stress. Um, I hate to say that, but like the thing that is more likely to save us than anything else is if we have good luck. And so far, 2020 has not shown that, but you know, we can always hope for that. You know, looking more longer term, uh, as I mentioned, I think we need national nonpartisan election administration and an, election, an electoral body that's, that is um, independent of the, uh, of the government, uh, like the Federal Reserve. I suggest someone who would be nominated by the president and approved by a three-quarters vote of the House. That would be somebody who'd have to be a consensus candidate, given a 10-year term, given a, 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 a budget that is free. I'd like to see a a right to vote amendment in the constitution that gives greater protections. State and local um, election officials for the running state and local elections be held to a standard of um, reasonable competence to make sure that voters have access, that the voting machinery is uh, not easily hackable, that uh, ballots are clear and easy to understand, uniform rules. Uh, there's a lot that we could do. And of course, uh, we're dealing with misinformation, making sure that people get accurate information and uh, I think public education, not just to children, but to adults on the importance of the rule of law and accepting the results of fair elections. That's not something I thought we were going to have to do as a country, but I think uh, given our polarization and deterioration of a lot of things, uh, a lot of norms in our, our, our current society, uh, we're going to need that, that uh, campaign again for the public. The, the Hill staffer and me can't resist asking, would the, the appointee for the nonpartisan independent body, how would you get around the vacancies reform act issues? Because that's I what think we, need a, we, probably, we probably need a constitutional amendment to make this happen. Uh, it's possible <laughs> that Congress could uh, statutorily create this body, but I, I think I would like to see it protected in the constitution because that would give it real authority and independence and you wouldn't get arguments that it's actually subject to power from the executive or that nominees have to be have to go through the Senate or whatever the argument is going to be. So I would like to see um, fundamental change and more important even than electoral college change, I think, is guaranteeing a right to vote, a meaningful right to vote in the United States Constitution. That makes a lot of sense. I appreciate that you said a House vote <laughs> rather than a Senate uh, vote. My original proposal was a Senate <laughs> vote, but as I see the Senate being uh, so um, so uh, um, malapportioned itself, I think the House is a, is a more representative body. It's the people's house. Uh, 
I was I was thinking when I was when I was reading the book and preparing for this, I started to think about what were the states that kind of gave me the most anxiety uh, in terms of their vulnerabilities and then the the posture of their the state leadership. I know Georgia is always one that comes to mind. Is there a particular state that you really worry about uh, as we we go into November? Well, Georgia is a good one to be worried about for sure. Um, but uh, I think I'm most worried about Pennsylvania and um, Michigan, uh, not because Georgia is better, uh, but because Georgia is less likely to be the tipping states where we're going to focus all of our attention. If, if, if Biden wins Georgia, then Biden has won a lot of other places. And I think we're not going to worry uh, right. if, uh, you know, um, so, you know, if the election comes down to a close election, it's probably going to be in those Midwest states like we saw in the last election. And there they've got a lot of problems. So, you know, Pennsylvania, above all, it's 20 electoral votes, big state. It's got a history, pardon me, of lousy election administration. And um, things are really up in the air with litigation over the rules. Uh, litigation, you know, to the state Supreme Court, to the U.S. Supreme Court and federal district court is just all over the place. And, uh, you know, I think that is the play uh, in the event that the election is super close, comes down to, to, to states like Pennsylvania. And that's where I'm putting most of my attention right now. That makes sense. Well, I had recently read how in Georgia they're doing a last minute update to all the machines and how that's causing chaos. And I think there's actually litigation about that now because of their paperless system there. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that was that was a they got rid of their paperless system. Uh, they now have new machines that print ballots. There's controversy oh. over that because what gets read is called a ballot marking device. What gets read is a QR code. Uh, mm -hmm. and the question of what counts as a ballot vote. All very complicated. But the re most recent controversy was about the fact that the, the machines that display the choices, you know, that you click on before the ballot is printed, uh, about half the time they were skipping some of the candidates uh, in the race for U.S. Senate. Uh, so, uh, so they were re so as I understand it, they were... Um, uh, loading new software that had not been approved yet onto these machines. So, as I said, the reason I'm less concerned about Georgia is not because it's doing anything any better, but because it's less likely to be pivotal. But certainly, Georgia was a big part of the function, a big part of the focus of election meltdown. And I suspect as it becomes more of a purple state, uh, you're going to see more controversies there over how elections are run. Uh, in and we'll I won't keep you for much longer. So I just have two more questions. In in your view, what, and it's going to be hard to narrow this down, what is the most dangerous threat we face going into November? Ourselves. Uh, the most dangerous threat to, um, uh, to the election is that we are going to psych ourselves into thinking that the election is not legitimate, even if it is fairly run, and that a good portion of the country is going to see this election not only as existential, but see the loss as an existential loss. And that could lead to social unrest. And so I'm really concerned in a way that I've never been uh, as a United States citizen, as someone who loves this country. I'm, I'm just very concerned. And it didn't have to be this way. Um, and, you know, all of that, we talked about that incendiary rhetoric, all that incendiary rhetoric has brought us really to a breaking point. And that is why, too, I hope we don't have a close election, because the closer the election, the more we're going to be torn apart over uh, the results of that election. Well, I think actually you've just, really answered my, what would be my last question, which is based on a quote from an, 
the beginning part of the book where you say, quote, the central norm at stake in this book is the peaceful transition to power after hard-fought but fair elections. Nothing before Trump guaranteed such transitions, and nothing in the Trump or post-Trump era guarantees it either. Democracy takes work, and it begins through recognition of the stresses on the American system of producing clear and fair winners and losers, end quote. And I think what you just said kind of really gets to that. So I guess the question is for the listeners is, you know, what do, what do what does the American public do in the lead up and in the aftermath? And it is really what you've just been saying. Get out and vote, be informed, you know. And, and keep pressing everyone to do their jobs, whether that's election administrators, the media, social media companies. We all have a part to play in this. Uh, it's, a, it's a national security podcast. And they say, you know, it's like, does the American people win this election or does Vladimir Putin win this election? And uh, I'm on Team USA uh, here. Uh, and uh, really, I think that um, keeping, if everyone does their jobs, we will have a successful election in November. Regardless of outcome. Right. On that happy note, <laughs> I think that's it for today. Thank you so much, Rick. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's wonderful to see you. It's been a while since you've been before the committee. Uh, and then it's a, if you want to hang tight, I'm just going to we'll say bye to our listeners. Folks, please go order the book if you haven't already. And also check out the Election Law blog. We'll make sure to include a link in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe to the New Books in National Security podcast channel and all the other New Books Network podcasts. Please stay safe. And we'll, we'll talk to you all later.